Well, it's a beautiful spring day here in New York. Temperature hit about 60 degrees. Sunshine this morning when I got up. It's a little bit overcast now, but all in all, it looks like winter is behind us and spring is here. So get outside and enjoy the fresh air and get some exercise. I try and do it every day, and I really only indulge myself in one vice as an occasional cigar, which I'm enjoying now while I do this podcast. So, welcome everybody to another episode of the Jamie Dury Show podcast. If you've not already done so, please subscribe to the show, and you can do so in one of several easy ways. You can either go to the Google Play Store, the iTunes App Store, and simply download the free Podbean app, which is our hosting service, podbean.com, or you can search out the Jamie Dury Show directly in either the Google Podcast Store or the iTunes Podcast app, in addition to searching it out in in the Podbean app, if you'd like to go that way. Either way you decide to listen to the show, you'll be able to leave comments, reviews, and we desperately need more of both in order to grow the show at an accelerated rate. So please give us a five-star review, recommend us to your friends, and try and listen often and listen long, listen to the whole broadcast. A few topics I'd like to cover today. Uh, We're all aware of this indictment that supposedly is coming down in the Manhattan DA's office against Donald Trump. What everyone seems to forget is that uh, this is only one of many investigations on former President Trump and hopefully soon to be President Trump again. There's the investigation in Georgia. There's the January 6th probe now by the Justice Department. No surprise there, since the Democrats can no longer control the House of Representatives where these investigations usually begin, they now have to go through uh, Merrick Garland. And to think that that fool would have been a Supreme Court justice had Obama gotten his way uh, makes you all wonder just how lucky we were that Hillary Clinton didn't get elected and that uh, Merrick Garland didn't get onto the Supreme Court. Regardless, they are now reinvigorating that false narrative of uh, Trump inciting people to riot. In the first place, there was no riot on January 6th, and we know that now more than ever. And I find it amusing that all the liberals in Hollywood at the Academy Awards were talking about, while making comments about the awards for film editing, how you can make anything look different than what it is, how you can make a riot look like a non-riot with editing. Well, that was a very, very Uh, interesting observation, but he had it a little bit backwards. It just goes to show you how you can make a non-riot look like a riot with proper editing, because the release uh, through Tucker Carlson now shows us that there was no riot there, that police were escorting people through. The only riotous action there was the murder of Ashley Babbitt by that cowardly lieutenant. And I've always been a big supporter of police officers and law enforcement my whole life. But the action taken by that lieutenant, which I've covered countless times on this broadcast in episodes past, was inexcusable. There was nothing that she, that she did that warranted the use of deadly physical force against her. In fact, under the conditions in which it was used, it was rather imprudent considering all the innocent bystanders that were standing by. In any event, much was made about this uh, impending indictment. Now, Alvin Bragg, the Manhattan district attorney, is trying to say that there is no impending indictment, that um, 
this request by the House Republicans for more information is inappropriate and treads upon New York sovereignty and so forth and so on, and that President Trump created a false expectation, a false narrative of an impending indictment. That's not what I think is going on here. I think several things are happening, or one of several things is happening. We do know that the Trump lawyer, Mr. Costello, testified after the former disgraced attorney, Mr. Cohen, testified, and that his testimony undercut that of Mr. Cohen's. And so now they have to deal with that. Now the efficacy of their case has been severely eroded. So no DA wants to bring an indictment that he thinks he can't bring to fruition in terms of a conviction at a trial or a plea bargain. Now, there's no way Trump is pleading. But there are other problems. Eventually, when you pick on a man long enough and you persecute a man long enough, all right, the hardcore liberals aren't going to change their position. But those who will be changed, the independents, those who are on the fence, those who are near or neither diehard Trump supporters or diehard Trump foes, they will be swayed. And Trump will become more of a sympathetic figure to them. The more investigations they have, the weaker these prosecutions and more flimsy they look like, uh, the more flimsy they become, the more threadbare, the more pathetic they become. Additionally, every time Trump wins, it makes it look like they're in a desperate struggle to get anything on him. So I think that these prosecutions should not be viewed as separate prosecutions by separate entities, but rather a part of a bigger coordinated effort on the part of the left in this country and George Soros to try and get Donald Trump or damage Donald Trump so that he can't run again or if he does run, can't win. I think both these objectives are ill-founded and are going to fail, but that's neither here nor there. They seem determined uh, to, do, to go forward with it. But Bragg now seems to be taking a step back. So I'm wondering if it is because he believes the efficacy of his case has been damaged and eroded uh, because of the testimony of Mr. Costello, or is it because people in the hierarchy of this coordinated effort are telling him, look, forget that thing. It's going nowhere. It's just going to make him a hero. And when we try and go after him again, people are going to say, with something more legitimate in our, our eyes, it's going to look like, um, oh, crying wolf. And then, you know how that goes. So I, I think that's what's happening here. They're trying to try and um, muster one big effort, whether it's going to be they're putting all their eggs in the basket on this Georgia prosecution, or they're putting all their efforts on this January 6th prosecution. I don't think that can go anywhere. So I think that's what they're doing. They're trying to now re-strategize and see which of these potential cases that we envision against uh, Orange Man are the one, is the one that has the greatest chance for success, and let's just roll the dice and go with that rather than make the man a folk hero and try and take a shotgun approach and come up with any little BS thing we can come up with to try and damage him because it's only going to make him a hero. So I think that's what's going on with the uh, 
Trump persecutions. Now, on another note, Trump held his first official campaign rally in Waco, Texas, and he referenced the January 6th incident showing videos. Now, Brian Kilmeade on Fox News thought that was a mistake. I think Brian Kilmeade is wrong. I think Brian Kilmeade is not really a big pro-Trump supporter, and I think Fox News, as I've told you before, is changing. I haven't really watched Fox News, with the exception of certain things from Tucker Carlson, since Election Eve of 2020, because it became apparent to me that there was something going on, even the way the states were reported. It was reported in such a way that Trump would never appear to have led at any point in time. For instance, they rushed, they couldn't wait to report Arizona as going for Joe Biden. Couldn't wait. And yet the margins were very close. But yet in Florida, when it became apparent that there was no way that Biden could win Florida, they delayed and delayed and delayed calling the state of Florida or adding any more votes to the totals until they were able to call Arizona. Because once they called Arizona, even though they gave Florida to Trump, ultimately, Trump was still never in the lead. They didn't want to call Florida and have Trump appear to be in the lead at any point in time when they knew they were stealing this election. And make no mistake about it, I don't care if the left or the media denies it, it was stolen. You just don't get six states suddenly, simultaneously deciding to stop counting all at the same time, all in which Donald Trump was comfortably ahead. And then miraculously, everything flips. Every single one, not two out of four, or three out of four, or four out of four, or even five out of four, but all six out of six flip. This is an election where it was never done before in the history of this country, where voting was just stopped. Ah, we'll come back to it in the morning. This was all done for a reason. And this is one of the major reasons why I think we need to get back to election days in this country, not election weeks. If you, can't, if you don't have an, a legitimate reason to file an absentee ballot, you vote on election day. That's it. None of these mail-in things. It's ridiculous. So I, I think that's what's going on here with um, these prosecutions. And um, now we have Joe Takapina, who was one of Trump's attorneys, accusing Bragg of misconduct. I'm not a big fan of Joe Takapina. I knew him years ago. He always struck me as a wannabe mob lawyer, but I guess his brashness or his toughness impressed Trump, so Trump is uh, using him, but I think he could probably be better served by, by other lawyers. Be that as it may. A couple of things that I wanted to get to. Now, I still want to get eventually to this banking uh, scandal. I'm going to have to probably get to that this week because more and more banks seem to be in trouble. Uh, I don't think we're going to have a complete financial meltdown, but it's certainly not helping the markets any. But there's a few other things that I thought were interesting. First of all, in my home state of New York, we have a war going on against gas stoves, not criminals, against gas stoves. We're going to get to that in a moment. The story that probably a lot of people aren't talking about, but What struck me when I was reading the papers in preparation for this show, because I read several newspapers, is a bill that is being sponsored in the state of Minnesota. Now, why do I mention that? Excuse me. Because Minnesota is one of the most liberal states in this country. 
In fact, in Ronald Reagan's 49-state landslide back in 1984, Minnesota was the only state that Mr. Reagan did not win. Now, that was partly because Walter Mondale, the man who was running against him, was from there, and he almost won it, Mr. Reagan did. Well, almost only counts in horseshoes, but he did 49 out of 50 states. But Minnesota resisted. Very liberal state. Very liberal state. You saw that during the riots with George Floyd and everything else. So it's surprising that in a state that is so left and would, you would think, embrace socialized medicine and all these goals in this socialist utopia that Democrats and liberals have been looking for for years, that they would be the ones who would push back against Obamacare and all the freedoms you give up as a consequence of the adoption of socialized medicine. But that's exactly what is happening. Happening. This Minnesota bill would restore the doctor-patient relationship corroded by socialized medicine. Now, I'm going to read significant portions of this article written by Matt McGregor because it highlights things that many of you probably have uh, felt was wrong with your health care today but didn't quite understand why. So let me go on here and read a few things. It's called Senate Bill 2388, and its aim is to establish the rights of hospitalized patients to receive treatment from their own physicians. Now, if that strikes you as odd, maybe you haven't been aware, maybe you haven't been in the hospital recently. Years ago, you went to the hospital, you were admitted by your doctor, and your doctor supervised your care. Well, apparently... Once you're admitted to a hospital today, most hospitals, your physician doesn't run your care anymore. The hospital does. He doesn't decide or she doesn't decide what you get. They do in an effort to try and curb costs and save money, keeping more money for themselves. In fact, many hospitals have hired what they call hospitalists, people who now revoke the privileges that your doctors have at the hospitals they were previously associated with so that they no longer have a say-so in your health care. So says State Senator Jim Abler. During COVID, people gave up a lot of freedom, the freedom to assemble, the freedom to go to church, to remain unvaccinated, and to choose one's own health care. All of these things were forfeited under the guise of helping their fellow man. This is very concerning to me. This bill is an effort to maybe unwind some of that. Now, the bill was written from model legislation proposed by the Minnesota-headquartered Citizens Council for Health and Freedom, co-founded by Twyla Braze. She was a former nurse. Well, she still is a nurse, but I don't think she does any nursing anymore. She's also the founder of the Wedge of Health Freedom. She authored a book called Big Brother in the Exam Room, The Dangerous Truth About Electronic health records. In an interview, Ms. Braze said that through the restrictive hospital protocols enacted during the pandemic, the issue was brought to light, but the problem has existed for much longer. Quote, many hospitalized patients discover too late that their hospital will not allow their trusted physician or other healthcare practitioners to direct their care. Although the lack of access to care 
from the patient's preferred practitioner became more visible during COVID. It did not start there. She said the process began after the enactment of the 1965 Medicare and Medicaid Act. Literally overnight, July 1st, 1966, millions of Americans lost all financial responsibility for their health decisions. Offering free care led to predictable results. No restrictions on benefits and removed all sense of cost consciousness. Healthcare use and medical costs skyrocketed. In other words, when you give people things that they never had before and you don't charge them for it, they'll use it with reckless abandon and impunity. People who had a little nick on their knee, they previously used a little betadine and a Band-Aid and toughed it out, now decide to go to a hospital emergency room and all these things add to costs. Little things that people sort of sucked up and bore and really didn't need to go to a uh, a hospital for, people now do, well, it doesn't cost me anything, why shouldn't I go? If they were paying for it, see how fast they wouldn't go. But now because they're getting it for free, they go. And it's breaking the healthcare system. So the HMO, the health maintenance organizations, was the first step closer to a national healthcare system, according to Ms. Braze, or what the public would later call, decades later, the Affordable Care Act of 2010, which mandated health plans, an HMO for almost everyone. A health plan and an HMO is very different from actual insurance. With insurance, you pay for protection against a risk, like your car insurance. You know what you're going to get because you know what you're paying for. It's spelled out in your policy. She said there is now an interest in decreasing the amount of care to the patient so that the entity, the hospital, can keep more money for itself. Now, as Ms. Braze points out, many of these things, the groundwork, were, were laid back in 1965 through that congressional action. But they've really accelerated after the Affordable Care Act. Now, many of the things about the Affordable Care Act were undercut during the Trump administration, including the mandate, most, most notably the mandate where they fined you if you didn't have health care coverage. I mean, it was, a, it was a fool's errand. Young people are pretty healthy. They didn't want to get insured. They didn't want to pay for it. They said, well, we'll pay for it if we get sick. We don't need insurance. Smart for them. Old people, they need insurance. They get sick a lot. You're getting older, your body's wearing out, you're more vulnerable to many ailments, so you want insurance. Liberals don't like that. They want everybody to have everything. And they want everybody to pay the same for it. But you can't do that. I've tried to explain this in the past. Let's put it in car insurance terms, which is the inverse equation of health insurance. When it comes to car insurance, the older drivers are the lower risk because they're driving longer, they have more experience, their adrenaline isn't raging, their hormones aren't raging, they drive in a more uh, responsible manner. Young people, youth, exuberance, drive a little fast, don't have as much experience, and often get themselves into trouble. That's why young people pay very, very high insurance, especially if they're driving a very fast car, and older people pay lower insurance. Now, suppose someone came along and said, I don't think that's right. 
I think that everyone should pay the same amount of car insurance and everybody should be mandated to have it. Now, in point of fact, you're not mandated to have car insurance in this country. You can self-insure if you wish. If you buy a car outright and have no loan from a bank, you pay 30000 or 40000 or 50000 whatever you pay for your car, you drive it off the lot because you've paid for it in full. The only insurance you're obligated to have is liability insurance. And that's insurance to protect other people, not you, for the damage that you may cause with that car. Nobody is mandating that you have to have insurance to protect your own interest, the equivalent of protecting your own health. You only have to have insurance in the way of collision and fire and theft and glass and all those other things if you owe money on the car to a lender, and now you have to have it to protect the lender's interest. But if you own that car outright, you don't have to have any of those other things on your policy. You can self-insure if you want to take a $50,000 loss if your car... loss if your car gets totaled, you can do that. But here, they want everybody to pay the same. So if we took that car insurance example and we said, I'll tell you what, we think that young people are paying too much and we think old people are paying too little. So to make everybody pay the same, we're going to raise the rates on the old people, we're going to lower the rates on the young people, and we're going to meet in the middle. And what you have is everyone paying a risk, a, a, a insurance rate that does not represent the risk for almost any of them. It's rather like having a room and saying that half the people are six feet tall and half the people are five feet tall. And so the average height of the people in the room is five, five and a half feet, but there is no one in the room that's five and a half feet. So everyone's paying a risk that either other represents or over represents the risk that they that they represent to the insurance company. Old people would be paying more than their risk is, and young people would be paying a lot less. That's just not fair. It's not the way it should be. Well, with the health care, it was exactly flipped. The old people would be paying a rate which underrepresented their usage of the health system, and the young people would be paying a rate that would overrepresent their usage of the health care system because the usage of the health care system for people in their 20s is almost non-existent. They just don't get sick. So what happened? The Affordable Care Act also created accountable care organizations, part of this new Medicare shared savings program, which Ms. Bray said turned the hospital into a conglomerate. And that conglomerate is in conflict with the interest of the payments. Quote, the hospital has become like an umbrella and under it, are either the contracted, owned, or employed physicians and clinics. By virtue of that, if the whole conglomerate can save the government money, they can get part of the savings back from the government, which tends to go to the hospital. The hospitals began to hire hospitalists and began to tell physicians, particularly family practice doctors and internists, They couldn't admit patients or direct patient care at the hospital. Quote, hospitalists are typically the only ones allowed to make a majority of the decisions about what happens in the hospital because that will allow the hospital to save money and gain a share of those savings back. Ultimately, these doctors work for the hospital, their employer, not 
the patient. The duty of a doctor, in my opinion, is to the patient, not to their employer. It's like a lawyer. When a lawyer represents a client, his duty is to the client, not the person who's paying the lawyer. If a lawyer is representing someone, say your son or your daughter, and that person is of legal age, they're 21, they got involved in some problem in college, uh, drunk driving or what, what have you, fight, and you hire a lawyer. That lawyer doesn't have to tell the parents what's going on, I mean, what was said between their child and the attorney, because there's attorney-client privilege. The fact that the parents are paying the bill doesn't mean anything. Doctors should be held to the same standard. They're treating you, their allegiance should be to you, not to the hospital. This type of thing is going on. This law in Minnesota is an attempt to roll this back. So if those of you are wondering what's happening with your health care and why things are so out of whack, this is it. But the reason why I spent so much time on this case is, of all the states in these United States where you would expect something like this would not occur, it would be Minnesota. Super leftist state. You would think it would be happening in places like Kentucky, and Mississippi. So what this tells me is that there is a mood in this country that is starting to push back, even in the blue states, against excessive government intrusion in people's lives. And these intrusions are becoming more ludicrous and more fanatical with each passing day. And so now I go back to reference what I said was happening in my home state of New York, the once great state of New York. And New York is doing this stuff on steroids. I mean, forget the congestion pricing plan, which I'm sure you've all heard about. That was a plan that Bloomberg, the former mayor of New York, was pushing to try and get people who commute into the city to pay an extra tax, an extra toll, just to come into the city of New York, which is ludicrous. People in New York are taxed to the limit. And now, in the wake of COVID, where people have still not returned to the city in the levels that they had before, where there's even less need for a congestion pricing plan than there was before, they're still pushing for it because they want the money. Because this, city, this state and this city are going into bankruptcy slowly but surely because people are fleeing the state and it's suffering from an unbelievably shrinking tax base. So what's the new straw man that they have that they want to attack? Is it the homeless that are ravaging people? The people ripping people, star, uh, ripping off store owners just going in and shoplifting and not getting prosecuted. People committing crimes that are out before the cops that arrest them are from arraignment. No. The new straw man, the new evil in the world, in the mind of the New York liberal, is something that we've all been familiar with since I've been growing up. The gas stove in your kitchen. Not just gas stoves, but all gas appliances. Listen to this article. New York State is reportedly close to enacting the nation's first legislative ban on gas stoves for most new construction, including single-family homes and commercial buildings. There is an uproar, uproar in this state over this plan, but Governor Kathy Hochul doesn't care. 
It's all part of her $227 billion budget blueprint, which focuses on phasing out the use of fossil fuels with a commitment to creating, quote, a cleaner, healthier environment for future generations. If this, measure, uh, if this bill, according to this article, is passed as is, fossil fuel equipment, not just stoves, and building systems in the construction of new one-family homes and smaller multi-family homes, beginning on the 31st of December 2025, will go into effect. The same prohibition will apply to new larger multifamily homes and commercial buildings starting December 31st, 2028. Now, the term fossil fuel equipment, what does it cover? It covers a lot of things. It covers a wide range of any oil or gas-powered plumbing, heating, lighting, insulating, ventilating, air conditioning, or refrigerating device and also elevators that may run on fossil fuels. That means, as a practical matter, you couldn't have a gas stove in your home. You couldn't have a gas or oil furnace. You couldn't have a gas or oil water heater. You couldn't have a gas clothes dryer. All these things that we now take for granted. Now, for those of you who don't live in New York, you may not be familiar with a little company called Con Ed which is short for Consolidated Edison. That is the sole supplier of electricity to the entire city of New York and the suburbs immediately surrounding it. They have the highest rates for electricity in this country. In fact, when I was a young man working in a local store in my neighborhood, one of the owners lived in the exclusive Westchester suburb of Scarsdale, and he had an all-electric home. With the exception of one appliance, he had a gas dryer. Now, he didn't have the house built. That's the way it was when he bought it. I don't know why it was configured that way, but that's the way it was. Most people back in that time uh, used to worry about their electric bills in the summer because of the cost of air conditioning. So they always prayed for a cool summer so they wouldn't have to use much in the way of air conditioning because air conditioning drew a lot of electricity. My ex-boss used to pray for summer because it cost him a lot less to cool certain areas of his home than it did for him to heat his home throughout the winter because the entire home had to be heated because he used electric heat. It practically broke him. Fortunately, because he had a gas line coming into his home, he was allowed to convert. If he didn't have that gas line, he would not have been allowed to convert, and he would have been banished to electric heat to the point of bankruptcy. If they pass this, this law, people in New York that build new homes are going to be broken. And if they ever decide to make it retroactive to people that already have these things and have to force them to take them out, they'll cripple this entire state. Now, the state budget that Hochul is proposing is due midnight on April 1st. That's only a few days from now. So let's see what's happening. And she thinks this is good. 
But not everyone shares the governor's enthusiasm. According to Pat McClelland, policy director at the New York League of Conservative Voters, she states that all eyes are on us, and a lot of other states are looking to what New York does. If we prove it can be done, and we have the political will to do this, it's going to open the floodgates for other states to take action. And she wasn't saying that if we have the political will to do this. She was saying if people are stupid enough to do this, other states will take action. Can't possibly have this. A lot of criticism in New York, including from Lee Zeldin, the former Republican congressman from Long Island who ran against Hochul uh, that last November and almost beat her. The margin of victory was only 300,000 votes, which is very close in a liberal state like New York and in a sort of twisted, cruel irony, it's been estimated that he would have won if not for the fact that Hochul was so bad a governor that 300,000 people, the margin of victory, decided not to vote in November of 22 to get rid of Hochul, but rather voted with their feet and moved to greener pastures like Florida and Texas. Had those people remained in New York and voted against Hochul and voted for Zeldin, we might not be in this mess right now because Zeldin would be the governor, not Kathy Hochul. But New York Republicans like Representative Nick Langworthy, uh, who chairs the New York State Republican Committee, called her a hypocrite for not getting rid of the gas stoves in her home in Buffalo and the governor's mansion in Albany. I mean, really, the law doesn't say it's retroactive, but if you're taking this position where you're going to visit such economic misery on such a large swath of the population, you should lead by example and do without gas in your home, shouldn't you, Governor? Quote, is it any surprise that Queen Kathy cooks on her gas stove when she flies around on private planes? So concerned about the environment, flying on private planes. Rules for thee, but not for me. People are sick of it, he says. Our state is in a crime and economic freefall, and she's waging war on appliances. And then we have Lee Zeldin. He also was sharply critical of the governor. Other than the higher taxes, the more crime, the elimination of gas stoves, less freedom, lower test scores, and other doozies, life in Kathy Hochul's New York is going just swell for her apostles who haven't left yet. And that was an oblique reference to the fact that... uh, People did leave New York as a result of, of what was done during the pandemic under Il Duce, Governor Andrew Cuomo, and what was done after that with Governor Hochul. But even a Democrat was pushing against it. Assemblywoman Monica Wallace, uh, who's a Democrat in the state assembly, said, I would prefer that we incentivize people to go electric, either through tax credits or other proposals, rather than forcing it upon them as an issue, because there's a lot of concern and angst about this, in particular in Western New York, where she's from. So just a few things to let you know what's going on. And in a really pathetic move, they're trying to say that there were certain studies that uh, done in Colorado that said that gas stove usage could be linked to um, asthma in young children. This would be part of a multifaceted asthma prevention program. However, the state of California did a more expansive study and said they found that cooking with gas is not a significant determinant of residential indoor air quality. 
and they con- they concluded that it has more to do with the type of food that is being cooked rather than the manner in which is being cooked or the fuel being used to cook it. So just something I wanted to give you. And lastly, before I left you today on this Monday morning, uh, Monday afternoon now, uh, I wanted to cover one other little thing because the reason why they did uh, begin this war against gas stoves in New York is ostensibly because of the environment, this falsehood of climate change. They used to call it global warming. Once they were able to prove that it isn't warming anymore, uh, it's, that it's, they called it climate change instead. But there's a lot of misinformation about climate change, so I just want to try and clarify it a little bit here uh, before I leave you. When I was a boy in grade school, all the scientific literature that we were given by the schools, you know, you get these pamphlets that they used to give out, um, were all talking about the next ice age that was coming, not about things getting warmer. They were talking about things getting colder, much colder. And we see how far that prediction went. And that was before people were fanatical about this. Now, when Al Gore wrote his book, Earth in the Balance, he got everybody all whipped up into a frenzy about the end of the world. We don't have much time. We've got to get ourselves right. Then we find out that almost everything that Al Gore did was based on a fraud. You see, it wasn't based on looking at actual climate data and then making predictions or trying to extrapolate from that what was going to happen in the future. Instead, what they did was they made computer models and they monkeyed with the numbers and skewed the models so that the models would predict these drastic uh, climate changes that they were predicting. Well, that was all fine and good in the late 90s when he was making these predictions. But 10 years on, when we got to 2008, 2010, and all these predictions that were made for what the climate was supposed to do in the intervening 10 years, when they didn't happen, when the earth didn't get warmer but stayed essentially the same, uh, nobody admitted what was going on. They finally had to be discovered when some of these falsehoods were discovered. You had whistleblowers telling about these sort of. Uh, rigged statistics and rigged computer models. Instead, they just revamped and said, we're we're a little off, but it's going to happen, but it's going to happen a few years from now. Most of these predictions they make 50 years on, when none of them are going to be around to be held to account when these predictions fail. Meanwhile, everyone's life is disrupted and made miserable. Now, Al Gore himself, he isn't too miserable. He's a man who left the White House as vice president back in 2000, uh, worth approximately anywhere between 8 and 24 million according to the um, almanac within 6 or 7 years of leaving the white house al gore was worth over half a billion dollars now, how did he do this well it's very simple you scare the poop out of everyone with climate change then you get yourself on the board of all of these green companies that are making these alternative devices, that these mercury-filled light bulbs, which are far worse than the ones that existed before, by the way. And you lobby Congress because they're all friends of yours. They're all people that you knew when you were a senator and when you were the former vice president. And you get all types of legislation passed. You know, we need to do this, senators. 
Oh, and by the way, I have a company here that supplies these light bulbs so we can fix it. And they paid him very handsomely. So Al Gore flies around the world today on private jets, apparently not concerned about the carbon footprint. And what's his rationale? Well, I pay the credits. So in other words, if you're, if you're wealthy enough to be able to pay the freight, to be able to pay the fine, it's okay to litter. So in other words, it's like walking down the street. The average working Joe, if he litters and he gets a summons for littering, he's got to pay it. Al Gore doesn't mind littering, so if he's too lazy to walk to the corner to throw his trash into the receptacle, he just throws it on the ground. They give him a ticket. He doesn't care. It's like pennies to him. This is the hypocrisy, the hypocrisy of the left. And so now people are starting to get tired. Boy Who Cried Wolf. In this great article here, it says that um, environmental experts have been predicting upcoming doom for many decades. Most, though not all, of these prognostications involved climatic cataclysm that appears to be just around the corner, only to fizzle out as the deadline approaches. As the failed predictions pile up, climate experts appear to be more cautious in making their predictions too specific. The general consensus among climate change proponents is that extreme weather events such as droughts and storms will become more prevalent or more intense. And who's going to determine? whether they're more prevalent or more intense. You all look at the weather. I wish you'd look at a weather app. Get yourself a weather app that shows you the, um, the weather and say, alert Canada, the northernmost inhabited part of this planet, because the North Pole, unlike the South Pole, is all water. There's no landmass up there. It's all frozen. I think alert is at least 800 miles from the actual North Pole. I'm looking at a photo here of a glacier from NASA's Operation Icebridge Research Aircraft. This is above Ellesmere Island in Canada, not far from Alert. This was taken on March 29th, back in 2017. Everything was still frozen pretty solid there. That's usually when we got spring. Uh, I look at the temperature every day. It's very rarely very warm up there. Things freeze very quickly. Uh, in Antarctica, the temperature never seems to rise, ever above freezing. Even in the midst of summer, it's 20 below zero. It might be 60 somewhere below zero during winter. So much of this is sheer fantasy. They can make these predictions almost with impunity because the average man or woman is not venturing up to the North Pole to see for themselves. They don't know if they're Climate is changing up there. And what I always found laughable is that these people are making these predictions about what's going to take place 50 years from now. Most weathermen can't tell you what the weather is going to be next week. We grew up, the biggest joke was, the weatherman is the only job where you can be wrong almost half the time and still have a job. And that should tell you all you need to know about these climate change hoaxers. That's what I'll call it, a hoax. But they try and pull on people's heartstrings by parading people like that Greta Thunberg, the girl who's afflicted with autism, who actually believes this stuff. She legitimately believes it. She lives in mortal fear. And they bring her out there using this person as as a campaigner against climate change. Aside from the fact that she believes it, and she's afflicted, so anybody who criticizes her is now considered to be anti-autism. 
What qualifies this 18-year-old little girl to tell the rest of us how we have to live our lives or how we have to change things in order to combat a crisis that is non-existent? You guessed it. It has nothing to do with anything. It just has to do with exerting greater government influence over people's lives and controlling the population, eroding individual freedoms, and attempting to move inexorably towards a completely socialized world, a world government. And that is something we must stand firmly athwart history and yell, stop. And there's only one man who's running for the leadership of the free world, presidency of the United States, that can do it. And that's Donald Trump. Now, I know a lot of you talk about DeSantis being a better candidate, but, you know, there was a piece of information that even I wasn't aware of. And I think this, more than anything, will prevent Governor DeSantis from running. He's doing a very good job down in Florida. There's no question about it. But it's also true that he never would have gotten elected if Donald Trump hadn't endorsed him. And Florida was in pretty good shape even before he got there, just doing well. He's continuing the good work. So I'm not going to criticize him on that score. But Florida is one of those few states that has what they call a resign-to-run statute. That means if you're going to run for another office, you have to resign your current one. Now, a lot of these people run for a lot of things. Current politicians. De Blasio ran for president, just so he could say on his resume, hey, I ran for president, even though he had no chance of winning. How many of them would declare their candidacy and run if they had to resign their current position to do it? Not many. And I don't think Governor DeSantis will either. I don't think he's that sure of winning the presidency to resign as governor of Florida. I think he's content to wait because he's young enough to do it for another chance in the future when he's no longer governor of Florida that he can work on his record and run at an appropriate time. I really don't think he's going to, to, uh, to make that decision. Now, it's true he could get the legislature to change the law, but then he'd have to do that. I, I don't think he's going to do it. So of all the things they're talking about, the thing that they're not talking about is probably the most significant factor in why I think Governor DeSantis will not run. Not unless things turn very, very sharply against Donald Trump, and I don't see that happening. For the Jamie Dury Show podcast, I'm Jamie Dury. Jamie Dury.